So there we were, sitting at Lama Foundation with the ice and the rain this last week. Um, and it was quite difficult, the retreat that, that uh, just finished. But an interesting thing happened in coming uh, to those kind of circumstances. And that is it felt like the retreat got deeper. That somehow, because of the very difficulties of this retreat and the hail and rain and camping out and so forth, because of the hardships, in some way there wasn't anything else to do but go through them. The roads were muddy. You could hardly get down from the mountain where this retreat was. So people just sat with it and went very, very deep. And we were thinking of making T-shirts that said, you know, I survived Lama Foundation um, and my own mind for seven days. It's hard to tell which is worse, you know. So there's something very special about using the inevitable difficulties and hardship in our life. And very special about having a spiritual container or crucible within which those difficulties can be transformed. And that's what I'd like to speak about tonight. That's really what spiritual practice offers us. The hardships and the spiritual container that holds them bring out a deep kind of goodness in us. Now, in the Zen tradition, the founder of Zen in in China centuries ago was a man named Bodhidharma who went there from India. And one of the famous, most famous Zen koans is about Bodhidharma who, in practice, sat facing a wall for nine years. I mean, he'd get up, I'm sure, to eat and pee and then sit back down again. And he spent nine years facing the wall um, and then had something happen to him that made him a good Zen teacher. Who knows? Um, But the koan, or the question in it, is what was Bodhidharma doing facing that wall for nine years? In Rumi, who is such a wonderful kind of alive teacher as a master of spiritual life, He uses lots of fables about people and animals and even insects. This is one of his fables. It's a vegetable fable that talks about cooking and simmering. He says the chickpea leaps almost over the rim of the pot where it's being boiled. Why are you doing this to me, it shouts. The cook knocks it back in with the ladle. Don't you try to jump out. You think I'm torturing you. I'm giving you flavor so you can mix with the spices and rice and be the lovely vitality of a human being. Remember when you drank rain and the earth in the garden? That was for this. Grace first, a little sexual pleasure, then a boiling new life begins and the divine has something good to eat. So there's something about the crucible or the container for our difficulties and the transformation of them. There was a friend who was hosting a Tibetan Lama in the the Southwest recently, and they went out to this Mexican restaurant and had a chicken dinner, and they asked the Lama, this Tibetan Lama, to please do a blessing over the chicken before it was eaten, and he did some Tibetan chanting for a while, and they said, well, what does that mean? 
And he said, well, I'm thanking the chicken for turning into Lama Tenzin. <laughs> so, the pot, the transformation, the sacred container. Much of practice, much of our spiritual life to mature needs a sacred container for transformation. It needs this container that is greater than our small self, that is the self that's called the body of fear and the mind of desire. I'm sure you know it well. (laughs) Something that honors a larger spirit, a larger truth than the body of fear and the mind of desire. In this retreat in New Mexico, I co-taught, I was assisted by a good friend who will be here in the fall and give you a talk at some point, named Ralph Steele, who is a black man, six foot two, Vietnam veteran, um, who didn't even grow up speaking English. He grew up on an island in South Carolina where they speak Gullah, which is one of the old dialects um, that's some mixture of African, and I don't remember what it is, uh, French or something like that, and English together. Um, And we had a wonderful time together, and in fact, part of what came out of our teaching together was the beginnings of an interracial Buddhist council for America to start to include various minorities in the Dharma in very active ways. He'll probably talk about that when he comes. But anyway, he was talking about being in Japan. He was a his, his stepfather was in the military, and then he was in the military in Vietnam, but he was in Japan, and he was studying judo and karate as a young man, 19-year-old, with his stepfather in the military. And um, he said, I went into this dojo where a number of men were practicing, and it was run by this diminutive little four-foot, nine-inch, skinny Um, master of karate and judo. And he said his dojo happened to be near a big American base. So there were a number of military men who went in there to get trained. And he said some of them were bigger and blacker than me and meaner. And they came in and he said, when I first went in, I was kind of younger, so I was kind of willing to do what the teacher said. But some of these guys had been in the military for a long time And they really meant business when they were going to learn something. So he said, I went into a class one day after a few weeks, and there we were, and there was this circle, and there were these new guys who'd come in to learn judo and karate, and they were big. And he said, and the teacher said, you get in a circle around me now. Now some of you have some attitudes coming in here. (laughs) He said, so let's work on that first before we do any practice. He said, maybe you like to fight. You know, maybe you think you're mean. Hit me, he said. Come hit me. So they just kind of put himself out there and they'd strike at him and he'd back back away a little bit. And then he said he started to tease him. He said, you're no good. You're so big, you can't do nothing. And he kind of (laughs) slapped him a little bit. You know, me, me, you want to show me how mean you are? Hit me. And they'd kind of try a little harder. And he'd continue to bait them, especially the ones who took the bait and were into that until finally they got toweringly mad, which, of course, is their great mistake, because then he would draw them into the circle and use all that energy. Ralph put it this way. He said, somehow, in a few seconds, you'd see them flying at him, their bodies flying off the ground, 
And the next thing you know, he'd be cradling their head so that that was the only thing that didn't hit the earth really hard. <laughs> and they'd be lying there a little stunned. He said, come on, Mimi, you're going to do it. Hit me, hit me. And he would stay with them as long as it took them until finally they were exhausted. He wouldn't let them hurt him. He just let that come out until they were exhausted. And he said, fine, now go stand in the circle. Who's next? An extraordinary kind of training. In a way, when we sit on our cushion to do meditation, the cushion becomes the master of martial arts. It's true. You sit there and your body tries to escape and your mind tells stories and you doubt, what am I doing? I'm doing it wrong. I've been doing it for all these years and nothing is happening. And then you get afraid and then there's pain in your knees and then you get bored and then a desire comes along, tries to throw you this way and then you get angry at your desire. And all those things come up and your task is just to sit there and find a center and understand something with the container, it's as if you become the monastery just here on your cushion. I do an exercise sometimes in my practice. I used to do it when I felt restless especially, which was I would sit at home and after a while, because there was a lot going on, I have to call this person and do that and something for my daughter and this and that, and I'd sit in all the things that I had to do that day would start to come in as they do and I'd find myself leaping up off off the cushion after a while wanting to get started and when I noticed that I said all right let's play with this a little bit the exercise is simple it's simply that I wouldn't get up until I really wanted to get up three times so I'd sit there and first you know, all the various things would happen and finally this voice, very compelling, you've got to get up now, it's been long enough sitting, make this call, the person will be gone or whatever. And I'd note that wanting to get up or desire and I'd feel all the impulse in my body and I'd breathe and just kind of settle down. And after accepting it for a bit, it would pass away. And I would drop usually to a deeper, stiller space. And then maybe five or ten minutes or fifteen, whatever it was, twenty minutes later, a very strong urge to get up. All right, now you've really sat long enough. You better get to it. All these things are waiting and whatever. And I'd feel that whole impulse. I could almost feel it picking me up off my cushion. And I'd just sit there and say, there it is again, wanting to get up, desiring to get up, and so forth. Sense that. And then it would pass. And again, it would deepen into a stiller, quieter place. And not until the third time that it came really strongly would I get up. And somehow my sittings dropped to a very quiet place in the last parts of that cycle or that sequence. Does it make sense to you? Are the windows open enough still or were they closed again? They're open? Yeah, just make sure it stays cool in here. Okay. So there's some kind of container that can hold all of this. In a way, sitting is nothing more than looking in the mirror. You sit and face whatever arises. Now, I know looking in the mirror itself is sometimes shocking. I look in the mirror myself these days, and I see this person looks like my father looking back, you know, and I wonder how that happens so fast. But to sit 
is to sit and just be with what's true, whatever is in the mirror. Your father or mother very often are there, as a matter of fact, or whoever else is present. To sit and sense and see and know what is true there. There's a certain quality, you could call it a quality of commitment or constancy or patience, repetition, like the stars that move in certain cycles in the sky and the seasons that repeat themselves over and over and the sun that comes up over and over and the moon that comes up over and over. There are these repetitive cycles that make up our life, birth and death, all the cycles of nature. And there's something to the maturing of our spiritual life that honors these cycles and seasons and sits or practices in the midst of them. A kind of capacity for commitment just to stay and hold the difficulties and the joys both as our sacred practice. This is from Rilke, where he says, Being an artist means not numbering or counting, but ripening like a tree, which doesn't force its sap and stands confidently in the storms of spring, not afraid that afterward summer may not come. It does come, it always comes, but it comes only to those who are patient, who are there as if eternity lay before them, which it does, so unconcernedly silent and vast. I learned this every day of my life, learned it with pain I am grateful for. Patience is everything. So it's the sense of ripening, of allowing, and the container that holds it. Now, one of the people at this retreat is a friend, a man who travels a lot teaching workshops around the country, a leader of such things. And his teacher, he had a teacher who died a couple of years ago, and he was very, very close to his teacher and helped the teacher through the death process, and it was a whole remarkable thing. After that, there came a tremendous period of grief because this teacher had been for him like the good father that he'd never had. He'd actually had a very, very difficult upbringing. This teacher was the replacement, a wonderful parent, wise and kind. And so there was this tremendous period of loss and this man couldn't teach and he was canceling workshops and he was depressed and he tried all kinds of things. He visited other teachers and said, you know, how can I find my teacher? And the Zen masters he would go to would say, your teacher is still here. But he couldn't understand that. Very, very difficult. And then when the war began, remember that one? The uh, Kuwait-Iraq War. He felt somehow that he had to do something about that. And so he said, I'm going to go into the plaza in the center of Santa Fe, where he lives. And he made a sign that said, sitting for peace. And he went into the center of the plaza, and he made a vow to himself 
that I will sit there every day, rain or shine, for half an hour from 12 to 12.30 with my sign. People can join me or not or do what they wish. I will be there. And he had to cancel workshops and change his whole life around just so that he could be there every single day, seven days a week, for half an hour at lunchtime during the war. And he said that is what healed his grief. Can you understand that? Because he just sat there and felt whatever he felt, and some days it rained, and some days other people joined him, and some days people made fun of him, and he just went and sat there. And he found that wonderful thing that had touched him in his teacher, in himself. And there he found his teacher again. I worked for a while in Switzerland with an old woman named Dora Kalf, who is the creator of sand play therapy. She was a close friend and disciple of Carl Jung and worked with his children, and he saw she was gifted, and so asked her to study, become an analyst, and to learn new ways to work with children, which she did using sandbox and all these little figures. Some of you may have heard of this kind of therapy, where you take all the trees and mountains and temples and soldiers and animals, whatever, and make scenes that you can't help yourself but making the scene of what's going on inside you. She was a wonderful old woman who died last year at 85, and very much a master both as a therapist and a spiritual master. She had a Tibetan temple in her home, and a lama who lived with her quite often in that temple. And every great Tibetan master who came out of, t- left or escaped from Tibet and got to Europe stayed with her. Karmapa and the Dalai Lama and Dujam Rinpoche and Kalu Rinpoche. For some reason, they all found themselves in her 15th century house in the, out along Lake Zurich in Switzerland. I, th- I like to think it was because she was one of them, actually. That's how she acted. And she said in her work, a very, very wonderful work, you come into this room that was 500 years old in this old big stone house, and there on the shelves on the walls were 10,000 figures of everything you could imagine collected from India and Ethiopia and Peru and ordinary figures of the milkman and you know the cars and trucks of modern time and all kinds of spiritual figures. And there was a a sandbox, and she would sit there as kind of the archetypal wise woman. And she said in her work that she only brought two things to it, or she tried to. First was to create a free and protected space that was absolutely free. You could do anything in it, and protected. You were safe to do anything. And the second was be there to understand what was done in front of her, not with her mind, but with her being in some deep way. And it was an extraordinary, it was like going into a temple. And I took figures down and made scenes. I had no idea the, what would come out of me each time. And the depth of it was, was remarkable. A free and protected space, a sacred container, and being met or seen with someone's whole being and understanding. Now this kind of sacred container 
is not just in sitting meditation or in the presence of some great master, although that's wonderful, but it can be marriage. And I don't just mean state-sanctioned heterosexual marriage, but any committed marriage or relationship. It can be children. It can be monastic vows. It can be our work. It can be our life as an artist. For three people out of a hundred in this retreat in New Mexico, it was cancer. That was their practice, healing themselves. They are all sacred trusts to ripen and mature our heart. Marriage, children, monastic vows, our work. Now, of course, in modern life, modern partnerships, marriage, modern work, even modern having children, the sacred is missing in our culture. And we have more marriages of convenience, looking for security or fulfillment or pleasure or some combination of those. And then we leave if it doesn't get, if we don't get our pleasure or we're not fulfilled in the way that we wanted or we're not getting our security. And well, we'll visit the kids on weekends or something like that. You know, and it happens really often. The majority of children here in the San Geronimo Valley Elementary School, by the time they're finished elementary school, will be living with uh, split families, with divorced parents or with one parent or another. The majority of kids. So modern life doesn't hold work. Well, you don't like this job? You go look in the paper. See if you can find another one. Really doesn't understand so well the value of staying with things. What matters is the repetition and the difficulty and the boredom as much as anything else. I'm reading Sam Keen's uh, new book, Fire in the Belly, and just gotten a little ways into it, but I like the dedication, which is to his wife and to their irreconcilable differences. <laughs> I think all men and women should understand that. It's not that they're easy, but that something in us knows when we commit ourselves, when we find that kind of constancy, when there is that repetition like the stars and the seasons over and over, that something in us is ripening. And all the old cultures and all the ancient wisdom knew that. It's called following the Dharma, the law, rather than the body of fear and the mind of desire. It almost doesn't matter what we pick, who our partner is or what we pick to do as long as it's reasonably wholesome. What matters is how much we can give to it of our sincerity, of our earnestness, of our heart. It's only through that sincerity or that earnestness that we can find a center, a still point in us that is awake and fearless, which can hold our tears and our beauty together. So, 
This is our spiritual task in a way. And it's a great spiritual task to discover or nurture this center, to value and honor through our sitting. You do it over and over, through prayer, through time and nature, through music, poetry, to find those things that nurture that sacred place in us. Read you a poem that's in the spirit of Rumi, but it's from a woman in New Mexico named Lynn Park, who has muscular dystrophy and is in a wheelchair for most of her life, but has a great spirit when she wrote about her growing up. It began, really, when she was seven, her disease, and between the ages seven and 17, she broke her legs 17 times, and they would heal, and she would get up and try to walk again. Here's her poem. Take time to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. Even the stones that break your bones will build an altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly, your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. When asked, who was that? They'll say, oh, that one has been beloved by us since before time began. This from the people who would have trampled over you to maintain their advantage. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. So we want to learn how to honor or protect or create or support or nourish that sacred container in us, that garden in ourselves. And what comes from that, from whatever spiritual discipline or way that we really commit our hearts to, is an understanding not of how things should be, that's never understanding at all, but how things are. For in stopping, in being present, in prayer, in listening, in meditation, in walking in nature, in standing still, we face the truth, which is that we don't know very much. And we really don't know how it should be. We sure have our ideas but we really don't know. See if I can find Simeon in here. Yes. The more a person enters the light of understanding, the more aware they are of their own ignorance. 
And when the light reveals itself fully and unites with them and draws them into itself so that they find themselves alone in a sea of light, then they are emptied of all knowledge and immersed in absolute unknowing. This is a wonderful Christian mystic. So it's not that through our spiritual life somehow we know more, but that in unknowing the mind comes to rest and then the heart grows when the mind is quiet. One Zen teacher said, enlightenment is an accident. Our practices only make us accident prone. (laughs) It's that ripening, that listening. There was a woman at this retreat that I taught last week, a very fine woman, who works as a social worker in a city with perpetrators of abuse, rapists, child abusers. And she was a very angry person in the early years of her work with them. A lot of sense of the pain of that that was caused and the incredible injustice of it. And as she said, she thought she knew really clearly what was right and what was wrong. I mean, it's such an obvious case that you don't do that to children or to women or to whoever it happened to be. But she said she was more confused these days, she talked to me. She said because as she'd been working over a couple of years or a few years more with abusers and rapists, she said she discovered that they were all abused as children. And the rapists were often abused by their mothers. And the child abusers were abused by their mothers and their fathers. And that their parents were abused by the grandparents. And she said she found three and four and five and ten generations of pain. And in a 70-year-old who'd been an abuser was a two- and three-year-old child who'd been abused, sexually, physically beaten himself or herself. And then she said, I just didn't know who was wrong anymore. When she saw or listened that deeply, when she stayed with that one year, two years, three years, four years, just listening and being there, all that she could see in the end was sorrow and all that she could feel was her compassion. When we look at all the great spiritual traditions that we are lucky enough or maybe unlucky enough to be confused by in modern America, you know, the spiritual bookstores that have every possible dizzying kind of yoga and mystical tradition and whatever. If we really listen to the great ones and read them and remember them and sense them, they're pretty simple. There are some heroic stories and some warriors, heroines, wise people, and there's all this talk about awakening. Awakening to what? Maybe this moment. Is there anything else? Just to this. 
but the great stories and the great traditions mostly come down to incredibly simple things, tales of forgiveness, tales of justice, tales of compassion and understanding in the face of the pain and the inequities and the mystery of life with its beauty and its death so exquisitely merged together. Really, really simple. And when we have this sacred container, that's what allows the heart to understand this, to grow. There's a famous rabbi, one of the Hasidic masters, and he was well known, his practice was giving things away. He was known for his charity, this was 300 years ago, in Moravia. Eastern Europe. So this rabbi was famous for his charity. Every beggar who knocked at his door was given a coin. And if not a coin, whatever his family had left, even if this left the family without enough to eat. One day the rabbi had no money, so he gave the beggar, the beggar who came his beautiful ring. What have you done now, his wife said. That's really the voice in us, too, you know. That ring cost 400 gold ducats. So the rabbi, on hearing this, ran out of the door down the road and caught up with the beggar and said, Listen, that ring is worth 400 gold ducats. Don't let them swindle you or take anything less when you sell it. Those are the kind of stories that are remembered hundreds or thousands of years later. The poet Rilke puts it this way, for one human being to love another human being, that is perhaps the most difficult task that has been entrusted to us, the ultimate task, the final test and proof, the work for which all other work is merely preparation. So understand and value the sacred containers of your intimate relationships, your community, your family or your marriage, the gardens that you plant literally in your yard or if you want to come and help plant and care for the garden at Spirit Rock. Seek out that container. Stay with it in your life. Use it. Sit, walk, serve, whatever it is. Breathe in and out and stay with your breath. And understand that there's this kind of ripening, that we're really not going anywhere else than here, and that to sit in the middle of it allows this wonderful love to grow in us. Consider, take time to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. 
Consider yourself blessed. The stones that break your bones will also build the altar of your love. Your home is your garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. When asked who was that, they'll say, Oh, that one has been beloved by us since before time began. This from the people who would have trampled over you to maintain their advantage. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. Let's just sit for a minute. I'd like to take a few minutes tonight not to ask for questions, because I've had my words, but to ask for discoveries. Did anyone notice anything interesting in their life and their spiritual practice this week that you discovered? Surely, someone. Please.
Thank you. Keep the hinges oiled. <laughs> Anyone else? It was a difficult retreat for me, um, not my first and, um But in looking back at it, I'm really reminded and feel like the difficulties really are maybe the best learning experience, the deepest one. And I really went through more and more. She sat a retreat a few weeks ago at Santa Sabina, and it was a hard one, more difficult than a number of others, great difficulties at times. And in the middle, of course, it didn't feel all that helpful or thrilling. But since completing that, her sense is that the retreats or the times that have those difficulties that she stays with, as she did then, become actually feel like the greatest lessons and the deepest learning. Is that right? Thank you. Please. Lovely. Could you hear that? He said, I learned about fear this week, and I learned that seeing it doesn't necessarily make it go away, but that it's helpful to see it, and that actually it's there to teach us if we pay attention. Someone else, please, loud as you can. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Let's just sit again for a moment. Take time to sit or be silent or walk in nature. Take time to hold your difficulties as your practice. They may have come to teach you something, patience, forgiveness, compassion. Take time to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden 
so the doorway can swing open easily. Give everything away except your garden, she says, your worry, your fears, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. Nourish it this week. Care for it. Keep that part of your life alive. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.